Hello and welcome to Kingsbridge Health Style, the health and wellbeing podcast from the Kingsbridge Healthcare Group. My name is Avril Keyes, your host, and I will be putting real patient questions to our consultant specialists from across the group. From diagnostics through to treatment, we will give you the lowdown of what to look out for and when and how you should make an appointment. Thank you to everyone who has sent through their questions. If you do have a question or would like to find out more about any of our services, contact details will be listed within the information box below. So let's get started and I hope you enjoy listening. So joining us today, I've got Dr. Turlock Barnan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turlock, you're an ENT doctor. Could you That's explain correct. to me um, what you get up to every day in your job? Uh, well, um, Avril, I think the, the large part of my day would be split between um, outpatient activity and theatre lists. So in a typical morning, I might do an outpatient clinic where I would see maybe 12 to 14 patients. And that would be patients referred from their GPs or sometimes would come from um, directly from their insurers. Mm-hmm. And some patients would be um, self-referred. So, for example, they might be looking for an operation to change the shape of their nose and... Um, they want to come and talk to me about that. So I'm going to see the full range of uh, ENT conditions. Um, we see patients with ear problems, hearing loss, tinnitus, dizziness, um, pain in the ear, discharging ear, that sort of thing. Um, for me, I have a subspecialist interest in, in conditions of the nose and the sinuses. So I would see a lot of patients with nasal blockage and um, sinusitis and nasal polyps and allergic rhinitis and things like that, you know. Okay. And then we also see patients with throat symptoms that can be hoarseness, um, sore throat, recurrent tonsillitis, that sort of thing. So the full range of ENT symptoms, mm-hmm. um, a lot of them are very common symptoms. So um, that would be a typical morning we'd be seeing 12 or 14 patients um, uh, and just having a consultation, um, asking them about their symptoms, the duration and, and how severe they are and <clears throat> doing a full examination of, of um the appropriate body part to see what's going what's going what's on, going on. Yeah. and uh, from there we can decide on the next stage of treatment which might be um, investigations or medical treatment or possibly added to a waiting list for surgery. And then do you go on and do you do the surgery as well? Yeah so if, if somebody needs an operation I put them on a waiting list and we'll, um, we'll operate either here in the Kingsbridge Belfast or mm-hmm. we also have uh, theatre lists now available up in the northwest. Um, Ballykelly. Up in Ballykelly yeah mm-hmm. uh-huh. so we um, for me I would do, again a lot of nasal procedures so for blocked noses I'll be doing septoplasties to straighten the nasal septum to help people breathe better um, if somebody has a broken nose they might need the nasal bone straightened so I'll be doing that. I do a lot of endoscopic sinus surgery, so that's going in through the nose with um, with an endoscope, and we can see the the inside of the nose and the sinuses on the screen in mm-hmm. front of me. Okay. And from there, we can we can do what needs done to help the sinuses function better. So we do a lot of a lot of sinus surgery. Okay. We also do a lot of routine ENT surgery, which would be things like uh, tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy in children, and putting grommets in the ears to help to help children hear better. So. Um, uh, a full range of ENT surgery and, and we have a couple of other consultants um, uh, in ENT but with subspecialist interests in the ear or in the throat for example and we would often refer things between each other if it fits into their particular subspecialty. Yes, so that, mm-hmm. that's, that's always quite, quite good, you've got that connection with yeah, other specialties. Yeah, it's great, yeah, we'll have a good team. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and what's, um, I suppose some of the things you've referred to, I'm thinking there could be quite a lot of people out there who just live with those things and put up with them, you know, is, is there a particular treatment you do that's like really successful, really improves people's quality of mm-hmm. life that maybe they might not realise 
think well, I think I think that's that's the important thing. It's quality of life. You know, we're, a lot of the things that I deal with aren't life or death issues, mm. but they can really significantly affect somebody's quality of life. So, um, one of the one of the worst things that I see is patients with a nose full of polyps. Um, these polyps are like jelly-like sacs that grow down from from the sinuses into the nasal cavity, and they can completely block the nasal cavity. So, okay. if you can imagine what it's like to live. Um, with your nose completely blocked. If you, even if you try to do it for a few minutes, you quickly realise how uncomfortable it is. Yeah. And these are people that can't sleep at night, and they can't smell, uh, they can't breathe through their nose. So it really does significantly affect their, their, their quality of life. Um, yeah. And for people like that, getting the polyps cleared from their nose can give them tremendous relief of their symptoms. So, mm -hmm. oh, that's um, amazing. And then do you do cosmetic stuff as well then? If it's to, Yeah, we to do a lot of um, uh, cosmetic rhinoplasty procedures. So mm -hmm. um, part of my, uh, at the end of my ENT training, I went over to uh, Guildford in Surrey and worked with the guy, Julian Rowe Jones, who has a, has a massive cosmetic practice down there. So okay. I would do a lot of cosmetic rhinoplasty. So um, typically somebody might present with a, with a, a hump on their nose that needs uh, reduced or they're unhappy with the shape of the tip of their nose and um, mm -hmm. oh, yeah so they would they would be uh, added to the waiting list for a for a rhinoplasty mm -hmm. or, or septa rhinoplasty if the if the nasal septum's deviated on the inside as yes. well so and how big a procedure is that because uh, you know a lot of the the discussions we've had with the doctors on these podcasts has been uh, sharing how the treatments have really improved. They've become so much mm -hmm. cut, more cutting edge and, and yeah. less invasive. Well, the the procedure that I would do for the nose in a cosmetic uh, area would normally be what's called an open approach. So I make a wee incision in the skin and lift the skin off mm -hmm. the nose to get access to the structures underneath. So um, I don't think the procedure has become less invasive over the years. It still does take. Uh, an hour and a half, sometimes two hours in theatre, okay. depending on what on what needs done. So, yeah. um, it can be a it can be a long procedure, but uh, I think it's important that you take the time to get the the right get result right. and the right outcome. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm sure that in its way does change people's lives because it well, can be quite a yeah, a, very very much. So yeah. especially you get you get young girls coming in and they're very unhappy with the shape of their nose. And the way things are these days with social media, um, their nose is photographed from every angle every yeah. day. So um, when they get an improvement in the shape of their nose, it really, really changes their mm -hmm. uh, their whole quality of life and, and their you know their ability to go out and socialise and things like that. Yeah. You know, so do you? This is a bit of a bonkers question, but does your nose keep growing as you get older? Uh, it does to a small degree. Okay. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. The cartilage in your nose changes, and you, you get changes in the and the stiffness and the strength of the cartilage and the soft tissues of the nose so it, it can okay. change in shape slightly as you get older yeah. and you can get conditions where the skin gets thicker and it becomes more obvious on your nose so okay yeah so there are a few ways that, that it'll change shape slightly as you get older mm -hmm. and getting back to the kind of more medical issues that you would treat i mean have have there been new treatments introduced recently and you know things that and potentially mm. things that you can have done in kingsbridge that maybe would be less available elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, um, from a research point of view, um, one of the things that I'm interested in is the uh, the processes that are involved in allergic rhinitis and nasal polyps and, and sinusitis. And what you have there is a, is a very complex pathway where, for example, uh, an allergen, like a bit of grass pollen, will land on the nasal cavity. And, and from there, the 
you get these antigen presenting cells that take that antigen, the grass pollen, and present it to the immune system. Mm -hmm. And when the immune system sees that, and some people it overreacts, so you get this cascade of um, messenger molecules that want the body to react to get rid of this allergen, and, and, and it's an overreaction because the allergen isn't that dangerous. So yeah. that leads to all sorts of symptoms like um, blockage in your nose, you get swelling of the lining of the nose, it blocks it up. You get excess mucus production that leads to a runny nose, you get runny eyes, you get sneezing, itching, you get a drip down the back of your throat. So um, looking at that that particular pathway is, is very important and there are um, there's a similar pathway involved in chronic sinusitis. It's a it's, um, slightly different type of inflammation, but you've got all these messenger molecules that are triggering the, the symptoms that the mm -hmm. patient experiences. So up until now, we have been using kind of quite blunt tools to, to manage those symptoms. So we give people antihistamines and that blocks the histamine part of the uh, allergic rhinitis response. And we give people we give people steroids, which blocks all sorts of inflammation in your body. So we can give them steroid sprays, we can give them steroid tablets, and that can be very effective. But the problem with using uh, a blunt tool like that is that you can also get um, unintended consequences in other areas mm -hmm. of the body. So you can end up getting um, weight gain with steroids, you can get thinness of the skin, um, you, it, it can affect your your overall ability to fight infection. So, yeah. um, so if we uh, if we can target very specific parts of that immune cascade, then um, then we're more likely to be able to treat patients without the side effects. So, that's where the research is going. And um, there there are two sides of that. One one is a, a new um, a relatively new uh, treatment called sublingual immunotherapy. Um, and that's where we give the patient a small dose of the allergen and they put it onto their tongue and it, it dissolves okay. onto their tongue. And you take that every day. Uh, and what that does is help to modify the body's immune response. So if you're taking a little bit of this grass pollen onto your tongue every day, then eventually your body adapts to it and, and stops producing that allergic response where, mm -hmm. um, where you typically get hay fever or, or allergic rhinitis. So, mm -hmm. Um, so sublingual immunotherapy for grass pollen has been around for a few years and more recently um, they've just approved the treatment for house dust mite allergy as well. So um, okay. they're working through the, the, the commonest allergens um, to yeah. be able to kind of modify that, that immune response. And then another side of it is targeting these specific cytokines of these messengers within the immune pathway. Um, and uh, that's, that's done by these um, drugs that we call biologics. Um, they've already been used in, in other areas of medicine like um, arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, um, psoriasis uh, can be can be targeted by these biologics but we're beginning to realize that we have some drugs now that uh, can affect um, the inflammatory pathway in the nose and the sinuses so okay. one of the um, one of the drugs that was found recently to be very effective was a drug called Dupilumab um, and in patients with nasal polyps, for example, a lot of them, uh, the polyps can be shrunk right back with uh, with these um, new biologic treatments. Now, there are downsides to them because it's a, a new treatment. Um, it's cost a lot of money to develop these new drugs, mm -hmm. so they're currently very expensive. So um, they wouldn't be available to everybody on the NHS. And so if somebody wants to pay for them themselves, they're still going to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it does give us some hope for yes. the future for these patients. It's, and, good. it's always good to know there's research yeah, happening. There, there's a lot going on and yeah. I think over the next five or ten years it'll become much more routine to have, mm -hmm. um, have access to drugs like that. And what does cause all these problems? I mean, is it an immune response in well, exactly, all, most yeah. cases? I mean, that's what it, it can be a combination of things. So it's a body's immune response and um, it, uh, it develops this, this kind of inflammation that shouldn't be there. Yeah. There might be different things that trigger the immune response. You might be genetically susceptible to developing it and then you get an infection, for example, that, that takes you on to the next part of that, that pathway. Okay. And still, uh, there's a lot of research going into this to, to determine exactly what does cause it. But yeah, um, yeah um, we're, we're moving forward. Yeah, and, and I guess um, one question that came in was around the whole area of sinusitis and and menopause. Is there a connection that you know of? Because <laughs> uh, women who have experienced that worsen at that time in well, their life. Well, there's no doubt that, that hormones can affect the lining of your nose and changes mm -hmm. in, the, in, in your hormone levels can affect the, uh, can lead to thickening of the lining of the nose, for example. And uh, yeah. um, certainly in patients uh, going through pregnancy, we often see that they're, they're prone to rhinitis symptoms that get swelling and, and, and blockage in the nose. Oh, yeah. uh, and one of the things you'd, you'd mentioned earlier was Osler-Weber-Rondu uh, yes. syndrome or hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. And yeah, well, we had a question came in about that as well. Yeah, it's just that there's a slight connection there because one of the experimental treatments for that was to use an estrogen cream in the lining of the nose, which would help okay. to thicken up the lining of the nose and um, and that could make the, the blood vessels less likely to bleed. It's not a common mm -hmm. treatment that we would use, but it, it, um, yeah. it has been suggested in the past that it might be helpful. So certainly um, your hormones do affect your nose and sinuses to a certain degree. Um, specifically, I haven't seen too many menopausal women coming in and complaining uh, specifically yeah. about sinusitis, you know, yeah. so yeah. I'm not sure there's a strong connection. It's a really strong one. And, and I suppose you had, we referenced Osler-Weber syndrome and mm -hmm. there was a question that came in, uh, came in to the blog on this in terms of just struggling to get support on the NHS. Is there anything um, that the Kingsbridge could um, do to help? I mean, the, the, the management of, of uh, this condition from an ENT point of view is, is to control the symptoms and the primary symptom in the ear, nose and throat is nosebleeds. So these are patients who have a genetic condition that leads to the formation of these aberrant blood vessels. Mm. Uh, and the aberrant blood vessels can form in many different organs in the body. They can form in the brain, they can form in the lungs, they can form in the, the gastrointestinal tract. Um, but for us, it's, it's common to see them in the nose and on the, uh, you can see them on the lips and in the, in the lining of the mouth. So, okay. um, and it's strongly inherited through, mm. through families. So it's, a, it's what we call an autosomal dominant disease. So that means that 50% of, uh, of your family members are, are, are likely to, to get it, okay. you know. So yeah. um, uh, I'm not sure about the, the, the management within the NHS. The, the, the problem can be that it, it needs managed by several different specialties okay. um, so you might need monitoring of your gastrointestinal tract to see if there are any lesions in there that would need um, would need treated um, you might need monitoring of your lungs in case there's any lesions in there that that, um, that need managed okay. and okay. Um, you might want to identify any any lesions in in the brain um, in case there's there's a risk of a bleed there you know yeah. so from from an ENT perspective, nosebleeds are the commonest presentation of, yeah. of the condition, um, yeah. and that's why we would we would see um, we would see pockets of them throughout Northern Ireland, where it, where it runs quite strongly through through, through families. Family. So, uh, and would an ENT appointment be a good first? 
Well, if there's spot. nosebleeds, definitely mm-hmm. um, come for an ENT appointment. Um, yeah. and, and nosebleeds are a good example of something that we can treat there and then um, mm-hmm. because we can anaesthetize the nose with a local anaesthetic spray or pack and um, we can cauterize any prominent vessels and do that in the outpatient setting. That can okay. be done within 15 minutes. So, okay. um, so if it's primarily the nosebleeds, then, then yes, we can we can treat that. And there, there are various other treatments that we'll have if, if the nosebleeds are too severe that they don't respond to nasal cautery. So okay. um, if, uh, I suppose it's important to remember if you do have a heavy persistent nosebleed, you'd be better going to uh, an emergency department. Okay. But certainly okay. if it's more... Uh, short-lived recurrent nosebleeds, we would be happy to see those in ENT. Okay. The um, a question in about nasal drip. I have a nasal drip all year round, flares up when I exercise. Mm-hmm. Help. Okay. <laughs> That's the word. Yeah, well, uh, we'd probably like to know a bit more about it than the other mm-hmm. associated symptoms, but um, it sounds again like she has what, what we've been talking about with the, this kind of inflammatory allergic pathway causing excess yeah. mucus production. Uh, so, um, I would want to examine the nose to see um, if there are any signs of, of allergy there and um, allergy testing would be very important in patients like this. Um, okay. We have a new uh, nurse-led allergy service over at the Maypole in Hollywood um, and the nurses there can do skin prick testing, take a full history uh, and um, if they identify the allergens. Um, they can give you advice about how to manage that okay. uh, and if it needs medical treatment it can refer back to me. Um, so main, there, there are a few different ways of approaching it um, with medical treatment. The first one would probably be a nasal steroid spray. Um, so that's given steroids onto the lining of the nose where they will act to reduce that whole inflammatory process. That reduces the, uh, the excess mucus production. Um, Typically, you have to take a nasal spray regularly every day. Um, I take one myself because I have allergic rhinitis, so um, it's quite safe to use long term. Um, the amount of steroid in the spray is only minimally absorbed into the body, so you're very unlikely to get side effects from it. Um, okay. So normally see the GP for a steroid spray. An antihistamine can be helpful. Um, part of the increase um, in mucus production with your nose uh, with exercise is uh, as a, as a natural response from the body whenever you exercise mm-hmm. so you can expect to produce a bit more mucus but you could reduce it if you're on on appropriate treatment and and we've referred to um i suppose the the allergy and the pollen allergy and i suppose we're we're, we're in hay fever season mm-hmm. um now and i guess uh, is i know lots of people really suffer badly from hay fever is there mm-hmm. anything that can be done beyond the. Well, again, it's being on a regular, it's being on a regular steroid spray and an antihistamine. Mm-hmm. And, so it's a similar and, treatment to this. Yeah, then. yeah, it's a similar thing, and you want to, you want to take it um, throughout the hay fever season. So, when somebody who knows that they're going to get hay fever, they want to start their treatment before their symptoms start. Okay. Um, so you might start in early April and carry that right through until September. Okay. Um, and some people take it all year round. So. Um, steroid sprays, antihistamines, um, uh, some of the steroid sprays also have an antihistamine in the spray which can give you a bit of additional benefit. Mm-hmm. If, if you know what you're allergic to you can avoid the allergen to a certain extent. Um, so that's why allergy testing is very important. Okay. okay. Um, uh, so that would be a good first step I suppose. Yeah, good first step. You need to be seen, you need to be tested, identify what you're allergic to and, yeah. and, and take it from there. Another simple thing that can be done is rinsing your nose with, um, with saline 
and you can get all sorts okay. of saline rinses over the counter in the chemist. Mm -hmm. um, and what that does is, is it just flushes away whatever's irritating your nose. So, um, particularly for people who are working in a dusty environment, um, if, if they come in in the evening, that dust can accumulate in, in their nasal pathways and cause irritation and excess mucus production and stuffiness. So if you rinse your nose out every evening with, um, with saline, okay. it's just a simple way. It's non-medicinal, so it has very few side effects with it. Mm -hmm. And that can just help to wash away the allergen. Yeah, very good. Um, lots of questions about tonsils and adenoids. So mm -hmm. when I was little, everyone had their tonsils out. I felt mm -hmm. left out that mine <laughs> stayed in because they used to get weeks off. They were probably off. lucky. Yeah. Well, they used to get weeks off school and they could eat yeah. ice cream was mm -hmm. all I remembered. But yeah. um, so what is the purpose of tonsils and adenoids and, and why? Do we not maybe take them out like we used to? Well, we, we don't take them out in everybody who has a single sore throat because there uh, are potential complications of the surgery. And um, uh, the, the main one being a, a secondary hemorrhage or a bleed after you've had your tonsils out. So uh, there's a risk of bleeding for two weeks after the operation. And if you have a bleed, um, it, it can be quite distressing. You can end up having to go back into hospital. Um, you can end up having to go back into theatre. You can need a blood transfusion. So. Okay. Um, that's why we're, we're cautious about who we do the surgery on um, and we'll have to make sure that there's a strong enough indication to do the surgery so that the benefits of the surgery outweigh the risks of the surgery okay. uh, and it's usually done to improve somebody's quality of life so uh, we get patients presenting with recurrent episodes of tonsillitis so they might get an episode of tonsillitis every, every two or three months and they're having to take time off school or time off work and if it's having that sort of an impact on their life, then um, it's a fairly easy decision to make. You, you go ahead and do the operation and, and um, they recover at home for a, a few weeks. We don't recommend that you eat only ice cream okay. during that recovery period. It's important that you eat a varied diet. Um, chewing regularly helps to keep the throat nice and clean and helps to stop the muscles in your throat from stiffening up and helps okay. with your recovery. So it's not just ice, ice cream. That's um, a shame. <laughs> And what um, about adenoids then? Well, adenoids we often and, do. And where are they? Sorry, because the adenoids, where they the adenoids are. sit at the back of your nose. It's okay. a similar sort of uh, um, tissue to the tonsils. It's what we call lymphoid tissue, so it's part of the immune system. People sometimes worry about taking out these parts of the immune system that you'd be prone mm -hmm. to infections, but you, your immune system has multiple other areas that can that can help with um, fighting infections, so it doesn't have a have a long term impact. Um, the main problem with adenoids is that they can block the back of the nose, particularly mm -hmm. in children. Um, is that because they swell up? or they Yeah, they can just swell up. They just naturally sometimes they, they grow bigger than they should grow. Um, okay. And they can swell up whenever you get an infection as well. So if a, if a child gets an upper respiratory tract infection, the adenoids and the tonsils can swell and that can, um, that can reduce the, uh, the space that they have to breathe through. So it, some children, when they get an infection, they'll be... Um, snoring loudly at night, they might have pauses in their breathing. It can be uh, waking them up regularly during the night. Uh, that leads to a child who's tired during the day, can fall behind at school. Yes. Um, so um, we would we would fairly regularly take the, the tonsils and the adenoids out for um, symptoms that we would describe as upper airway obstruction. Yeah. So, uh, and you'll notice that if, if your child isn't sleeping well at night, if, if um, if they're waking up regularly, um, it, it might be as well to get them checked out. Yeah, so that is actually one of the questions. So mm -hmm. uh, a boy age three, a chest in and out while sleeping, snoring, wakening up from sleep, noisy breathing, nasal sounding voice, 
and uh, a concern from the parent that's maybe affecting his hearing. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds like, a, um, I mean, they're being advised to maybe wait till he's a little older, but it maybe sounds like it's worth looking at. It very much depends on the severity of the symptoms when we intervene. Um, and we can intervene at any stage. Uh, ideally, we like to get a child up to the age of four, for example, before we would take the tonsils out. Okay. But if a child's having trouble breathing every night, um, that would indicate that we should go ahead and intervene earlier. Mm -hmm. And intervention um, can be removing the adenoids, uh, sometimes it's removing the adenoids and the tonsils at the same time. Uh, and in a case like this, the child might actually need grommets or vents in the ears um, because it sounds like they might have glue ear as well. Okay. And the, the glue ear comes about because the adenoids are enlarged um, they block the eustachian tube, which connects the ear to the back of the nose. Mm -hmm. And when when that eustachian tube gets blocked by the enlarged adenoids, they get a fluid buildup uh, in their middle ear behind the eardrums. So they get what's okay. called glue ear. So it, it's very common in children to have glue ear along with enlarged adenoids and sometimes enlarged tonsils as well. And and I think that was a, that in addition to the end that there were some throat infections and ear infections yeah. this past year. Mm -hmm. So, and I guess the. How, how invasive is that? Because that sounds scary to me as a parent. Children bounce back from it very quickly. Okay. You know, they, um, the procedure might take 20 minutes, half an hour, depending on, on what needs done and how, how complicated it is. But um, it's often done as a day case procedure. So children okay. are in and out in the same day. Um, the, the, the one proviso to that is if I have a child who has quite severe um, obstructive symptoms. So if, if, if they have a lot of apneas during the night, and apneas where they stop breathing, mm -hmm. in those circumstances, we'll probably keep them in overnight after the surgery to make sure that they're, sometimes they, when you remove the obstruction, they actually you almost forget to breathe. It's easier, so too easy for them to breathe because okay. they've been struggling for so okay. long. So they can drop their oxygen saturation. So mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a severe case, we'll probably keep them in overnight. but. Uh, but many of the children that have their tonsils and adenoids out now would be done as a day case. So they're in and out the same day. They um, they go home and recover for for two weeks at home, and then and then you Good to go. the vast majority of them um, are significantly better after yeah. the surgery. So and it's always nice to share. I think stories of I mean, have you seen that then in, in kids who've been pretty miserable? Who oh absolutely have, yeah. yeah, and I mean, and and some children. You can tell as soon as they walk in the door that they need their tonsils and adenoids out, or at least that they need their adenoids out. Because right? they, yeah, I mean they're, you know, they're they're almost snoring when they're awake. Um, so if you Gosh, see a child yeah. like that, I mean, um, before they even before the parents give me a history of what's going on, you almost know what's happening. You know, so <laughs> already got them down for surgery. Yeah, put them on the list, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> and is there an optimum age, or does it does it really matter? Well, again, ideally get them up to the age of four, but it very mm -hmm. much depends on the on the symptoms that. Um, it's weighing up the risks of, of the surgery. If we're taking the tonsils out, there's more risk of having a bleed afterwards. Mm -hmm. If we're just doing an adenoidectomy, the risks of bleeding are significantly less. Um, so I'd be more inclined to do an adenoidectomy in a, in a younger child. Um, and even if that might mean that they, they might need their tonsils out at a later date, um, mm -hmm. sometimes we would do the adenoidectomy if they needed vents, put in, put in the vents. Um, uh, in their ears to help with their hearing and uh, um, maybe bring them maybe, back, maybe bring them back mm. you know um, you, you obviously want to avoid two general anaesthetics if possible of but um, you also the priority is to do things safely so mm -hmm. um, if it's safer to do the uh, a, a sort of a two-stage procedure then, then we might well do that, do that um, yeah. but we do we do take tonsils out in younger children as well if we have to okay
So I've had another question uh, about can asthma cause nose issues like severe catarrh and, and dry nose, reduced smell? Or would that be typically just... Well, I mean, uh, we talk about one airway. So um, the the mucosa that lines the airway of, of the nose and the sinuses is, is, um, is very similar to the mucosa that lines the lungs. Um, so when you get a condition that affects the nose and the sinuses, you often also get um, lung problems like asthma. Mm. Um, and it can go hand in hand with these nasal polyps that we spoke about earlier. Uh, it's, a, it's that same inflammatory pathway. Yeah. Um, so a lot of patients with asthma do end up with nasal symptoms and, and chronic sinusitis and vice versa. Uh, when, when, when I see someone who has chest problems and, and they also have um, nose and sinus problems, I would aim to treat their nose and sinus issues. Obviously it'll be a, a respiratory consultant who's treating the mm -hmm. chest, but we do often see an improvement in chest symptoms such as asthma whenever we adequately treat the sinuses. So if you have chronic sinusitis that needs sinus surgery and, and you, you remove the polyps and you remove the infection that's in the sinuses and you allow better airflow through the nose, and that, that often has a beneficial effect on the chest. On the chest, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, that, that's certainly the case with my own son. He mm -hmm. um, he takes antihistamines and it improves his asthma. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just absolutely. the way it's worked for him. Yeah, the the asthma is actually connected to the... Yeah, and there are some treatments that are, um, that are approved for use in patients with nasal polyps and asthma. Um, okay. um, singular would be, would be a common one that's used for asthma. And if somebody has nasal polyps, it can be a, a effective there as well you know so um. very good okay and um is well firstly red flags i always like to to address are there any red flags where people should really you talked about the the heavy bleeding mm -hmm. from the nose are there any other kind of red flags well, i suppose a typical one for us would be somebody who comes in with a change of voice um so um red we talk about red flags we're thinking about conditions that we want to pick up early um, that might be caused by a, a serious condition, typically cancer we're, we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And if we catch it early in the disease process, um, it can lead to a significantly better outcome for the patient. Um, so an, an example that we commonly face in ENT is somebody who presents with hoarseness, changing the voice. Um, okay. And we really want to pick things up early because if, if you get a, a, a cancer in your larynx or your vocal cords, uh, it can it can change the quality of your voice at a very early stage. And if you pick that up, then uh, the outcome for the patient can be so much better uh, than, than if, it was, if it was left unchecked. So, um, and I, I suppose the other important side of this is that most patients that have red, what we call red flag symptoms don't have cancer. Um, okay. So a lot of what we do is provide reassurance. So we examine the area. Uh, when somebody comes to see us in the clinic in the Kingsbridge, we can, um, pass a flexible scope down through the nose uh, and that lets us visualize the vocal cords down here and uh, in most cases we're saying look there's nothing serious here mm -hmm. you might have a bit of inflammation or a bit of mucus in your throat or um, you might have signs that you have a bit of reflux coming up from your stomach and causing a change in your voice um, but if there's something sinister there we can see what's there get the patient in for a biopsy and then okay. and then start them on the uh, on the pathway of treatment and as I say um, the, the surgery for throat cancer can be very destructive, but if you catch it early on, it's minimal. And okay. sometimes um, invasive surgery isn't even required. Yeah, but that would be the main 
kind of... Yeah, I mean, we're, there, there, there are lots of other red flag symptoms in ENT. I mean, we're, we're, um, if somebody has difficulty swallowing, if they notice a lump in their throat, lumps, any lumps in the neck need to be looked at um, fairly quickly. And again, a lot of lumps in the neck are totally benign, mm -hmm. but we need, to, we need to look at them and investigate them. Yeah. Um, you want to be looking in your, in your mouth for any red plaques or, or white plaques or any ulcers that aren't improving or any, any new lumps in the lining of your, of your mouth or your throat they should be seen to. Um, from, my, from my kind of rhinology subspecialty, um, I'm thinking about sinus issues. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things in ENT, we always think if uh, if a symptom is unilateral, so if it's just affecting one side, that there's there's more risk associated with that. So, okay. if somebody comes with unilateral facial pain or unilateral numbness, or a gradual onset of unilateral nasal blockage, then we might be concerned that there could be something growing in their sinuses, and it would need investigated. So, okay. and and also unilateral ear pain is another one that. Um, Sometimes ear pain can be referred from a tumour in the throat. Um, so if somebody's getting pain just in, in one ear, we would certainly want to see them uh, sooner rather than later. Okay, well, that's good to know. Good mm -hmm. to know. Um, it is, I suppose, lifestyle, and I guess I think as we've been talking about it, being quite immune driven. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm guessing lifestyle changes will certainly help. Well, um, there, there are various things in ENT that, that can be affected by your lifestyle. I think the important message for me to get across would be to reduce the, the serious risk factor. So smoking is by far the biggest cause of head and neck cancer. So um, you, you want to reduce or stop, preferably stop your smoking altogether. Yeah. Excess alcohol consumption um, is also a risk factor. Um, from from uh, the... Um, less serious things um, that, that we could uh, change with lifestyle factors. Again, we talked about rinsing your nose out if you have, if you're working in a dusty environment on a building site, um, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Um, that can help to keep your, your nose in good shape. Um, weight control is another one that's very important because uh, in ENT we would see a lot of patients who are overweight and that leads to snoring, sleep apnea, mm -hmm. uh, and just like it has an effect on the children that can make them um, fall behind at school. It can give people difficulty keeping awake throughout the day yeah. at work and getting, mm -hmm. you know, maybe being less productive than they should be at work and things like that, you know. So, yeah. and it can also ultimately, if you have, if you're snoring to the extent where you're into sleep apnea, where you're stopping breathing at night, that can also have an impact on your on your overall health, put up your blood pressure, and, and make you have more risk of uh, strokes and heart attacks and yeah. things like that. So you do need to do need to manage your weight to keep your airway open at mm -hmm. night. Makes sense. And. Um, <laughs> I have to mention snoring, seeing as you've said it already. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm one of many women <laughs> who puts up with that on a nightly basis. Uh -huh. Is there anything you can do to stop your husband snoring? Well, first of all, the most important thing is to uh, control any excess weight. Um, mm -hmm. So um, uh, any excess weight around the, around the neck of the throat um, reduces the, the space of the airway at night. and. Um, that leads to fluttering of the soft tissues in your throat, which leads to which leads to snoring. So, um, weight loss would be the first thing. Um, Treatment-wise, um, the the first thing that I would always say to patients is to consider what's called a mandibular advancement splint, um, and that's where they wear a device like a bite guard, um, and it's designed to hold the jaw forward at night and. It brings the jaw forward just by a few millimetres and that brings the tongue away from the back of the throat and that reduces the, the snoring that way. Okay. Um, from, from a nasal aspect, um, 
we would always want somebody to have a clear nose because if your nose is blocked again, you're more likely to mouth breathe and snore at night. So mm -hmm. if there was, for example, a, a deviated nasal septum that was causing nasal blockage, then we would want to correct that. Mm -hmm. If there are nasal polyps or rhinitis, we would want to treat that to, to help. It doesn't always take away the snoring, but it certainly is one of the steps in, in helping snoring. Mm -hmm. Okay. so. There are a few options. There's a few options, yes. Yeah. No, that's great. Thank you so much. I found that really interesting. And I think the breadth of what you do, uh, I wasn't mm. really fully aware of mm. the, the real breadth of, of treatments. Mm. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Turner. Thank you very much.